0: Hello and welcome to this episode of The Lives and Styles of Old Hollywood. So I have talked about Eleanor Glynn last week, touching on her sister Lucy every now and then. And the episode today is the one dedicated to Lucy, who would also become an important player in the Hollywood scene. A quick recap for those who hear this episode before the Eleanor Klin one, to get an understanding of where Lucy comes from and what her background is. So, Lucy's parents were Douglas Sutherland and the Anglo-French Canadian Eleanor Saunders. Both kids, so Lucy and her sister Eleanor, were born in London, England, but moved to Canada and were eventually raised in their grandmother's home in Ontario, when their father had died from typhoid fever when working on a tunnel construction the grandmother had spent her youth in Dublin and Paris and had there learned the ways of high society. She had met her husband in Paris and together with him emigrated to Canada, where together they built a ranch in the Wilderness and had eight children. So this is the home Eleanor Saunders returned to with her two girls, Lucy and Eleanor, when being widowed at age 23. The grandmother intended to raise the two girls for appearing in high society and taught them all the finer things that were important back then. For example, that a lady of high society never shows emotions, that she always will be witty no matter the circumstances, and that she dresses up in her finest clothes for dinner or any time during the day. Lucy, who was the older one, actually hated the strict rules of the home and ran around with the boys. She was really the wild one. When their mother married David Kennedy and moved him all the way back to Scotland, their world changed. And soon they would relocate to the Isle of Jersey. And here, a crucial element for the lives of both sisters got evident. It was their absolute detest of the Victorian ideal of wifely duty. They saw their mother tend to their stepfather like an obedient slave with no emotion or love exchanged. And they decided then and there that this definitely would not be their lives. The two sisters were bright and they were always the best dressed because Lucy had great dressmaker skills already at a very young age. And when she did not roam about with the boys, she made beautiful dresses for herself and for Eleanor. And she had an ever-growing collection of fashion dolls that she dressed and she liked to study the clothing and family portraits. So she had a really early interest in the fashions of the past and the day. Lucy left Jersey early on to escape the tyrant that her stepfather was, and she stayed with relatives in London. And there, in London, she married wine merchant James Wallace, but she was incredibly unhappy about the marriage. They had a baby within a year, but James was mostly absent and drunk. Eventually, Lucy decided to divorce her husband when he went off with a dancer. It was quite new for women back then to be able to divorce, but it was not only time-consuming and costly, it was almost always destroying the woman's reputation in the process. Nevertheless, Lucy filed for divorce and she set aside on establishing a fashion business as a single mother. At the beginning, she worked under the name of Mrs. James Wallace in Mayfair out of a tiny flat where she was cutting garments on the floor. Ironically, The money that was used to establish the business was the inheritance her mother received after the stepfather's death. Lucy was absolutely confident in her skills as a dressmaker. The tricky part was to get the women of high society to know about her and to buy the dresses. So her first real entrance as a dressmaker to high society was her sister's marriage to Clayton Klynn, as Lucy had designed Eleanor's wedding gown. Her little daughter Esme was the flower girl flattening the train of the dress and showing off its full beauty. One of Lucy's trademarks was the use of color, the mix of different eras and flowy designs. So right after the wedding, when people saw her tremendous skill and the great gown, her order book started to fill up with the guests from the wedding. Her start was a huge success. Shortly after, she counted her sister Eleanor as a client, but also Daisy, the Countess of Warwick her half-sister Angela, Lily Langtree and the Great Society hostess Mrs. Willie James. Additionally, Lucy conquered the stage as a costume designer, dressing her sister and other actors for the play Diplomacy that Lady Daisy's stepfather brought to the stage. Everybody was shocked by Lucy's creations as they had bold colors, flamboyant eroticism and quite realistic looks compared to the stiff fake costumes that had been used in theaters up till then. This led to other theatre engagements to capture the erotic narrative of plays. Lucy gained great success for her work for the operetta The Merry Widow in 1907. Lucy basically had turned the unknown actress Lily Elsie into a star. Because Lucy had been tasked by the operetta's producer to design her clothes, but also to turn her into a leading lady who knew how to hold herself, knew how to move and knew how to show up. His words, according to Lucy's autobiography, were she, so Elsie, has never done anything to speak of. But I know she is clever. You must give her a personality and coach her so that she can keep it up. Which Lucy did successfully so. Lucy designed the costumes for the operetta, including the plumped hat that became an extraordinary fashion trend back then. And thereafter, Lucy used Elsie to promote her fashions by designing her personal clothes and costumes for several of her other shows. Lucy later wrote about her encounter with Lily Elsie, I realized that here was a girl who had both beauty and intelligence, but who had never learned how to make the best of herself. So shy and diffident was she in those days, that a less astute producer than George Edwards would in all probability have passed her over and let her in the chorus." Which shows that both Eleanor and Lucy, who were sisters, were great at transforming a woman into the highest and most glamorous version of herself. In 1914, Lucy would write an article for Harper's Bazaar called Stage Dressing Demands Accentuation. In it, she explains her design choices for the theatre stage. The actress moves under special conditions of light that exist nowhere else and under auditory conditions as well. Her dresses have to be of broader effect and more vivid colouring. So, this was the start of an empire. And finally, after divorcing James Wallace, Lucy wed her business partner, Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon. He was a well-known Olympic fencer and a wealthy nobleman, and he helped Lucy set up Lucille Limited in Hanover Square. That's why if you read texts about Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon, you might have it spelled like Lucille, Lady Duff Gordon, because she used Lucille and Lucy interchangeably. But for the context, I will continue using Lucy. In addition to developing her business, Lucy also developed her artistic identity. She dressed in robes of pearls, tall Russian boots, simple black smock and a walking stick. She literally embodied the eccentric and commanding creative artist that was to rule the fashion of society's highest circles. And her approach to creating designs was very different than other dressmakers. Yes, she took into account the customer's figure, face, colors and preferences, but she went one step further. She promised her clients that her dresses would make the wearer appear like one of the stars of the theatre. Those admired for their beauty and charisma by millions. And she gave the gowns names that expressed the individuality of each woman, tailored to her wishes. As Lucy was a very sought-after lingerie designer, some of her creations had names like The Sighing Sound of Lips Unsatisfied or It's All in Knowing How. I mean, these were great names. (laughs) What Lucy would be remembered for, fashion-wise, were the introduction of slit skirts and low necklines, less restrictive corsets, as well as alluring and part-down lingerie. What made her gowns immediately recognizable to female audiences were her use of sheer fabrics, pale colors, soft drapery, dramatic asymmetrical effects and tiny hand-wrought silk flowers as trimming which became hallmarks of the ultra-feminine back then. Another first for Lucy was that she was a pioneer of modern fashion shows. She built the first-ever catwalk and arranged it like a theatre production, with lighting and stage and music. And the invitations to the show were handwritten, so she was the first one to do it. Lucy's wealthy clientele by that time included aristocracy, royalty and theatre stars. And she would open a New York branch of Lucille in 1910 to serve the US audience as well. But then the Titanic incident happened. When Lucy and her husband Cosmo set foot on the Titanic on April 11th, 1912, she was probably the most photographed and quoted and covered couturier of the time. She was a self-made woman with a very eccentric flair. When disaster struck and the Titanic sinking was unavoidable, Lucy was one of the 12 people in lifeboat number one that was actually capable of holding 40 people, and its passengers were mostly men, 10 to be exact out of the 12. Lucy got seasick almost immediately on small boat and vomited all over her coat and the boat. And when the Titanic sunk just before her very eyes, she lost consciousness and was only occasionally awake, vomiting from seasickness. So it was a horrible ordeal. But scandal arose from this lucky incident of having survived. Because the hardly-filled lifeboat did not return to get any more survivors on board. Which the press blamed on Cosmo Duff Gordon. Because he had promised the seamen five pounds, as they had lost all their livelihood during the disaster. Others, though, saw it as a bribe to not row back and save others. During the hearing, in court, the man in charge of the boat did say that this was his reasoning, not that of the passengers. He basically said that it would have been suicide as a drowning man will cling to anything and the remaining people in the water would have capsized the boat. Still, the public picked the rich and noble Cosmo Dove Gordon for this tragic incident for the remainder of his life, which would put incredible strain on the marriage to Lucy. Lucy, on the other hand, also a trauma victim of the situation, came out unscarfed of the scandal with her business. Lucille was running better than ever with the New York boutique she had just opened. Lucy turned her back on England. Dad had treated her and her husband so badly and she stayed in the US, mostly without her husband Cosmo, who rather retreated to his Scottish estate. Lucy actually had another close encounter with a sinking ship. Three years after the sinking of the Titanic, She had booked a trip on the RMS Lusitania, but had to cancel because of sickness. Lucky for her, as the Lusitania was sunk by a German torpedo with not many people surviving. But business-wise, everything was going great for Lucy. The opening of the Parisian branch of Lucille became another great success, with visiting Americans, celebrities and the demi-monde. Which means those in the half shadows, the mistresses of high society, the actresses, and the dancers. Eventually, the opening of her fourth full scale branch in Chicago meant that she was the first leading couture house to do so. Lucy sought the spotlight and flourished in it. She also had columns on her latest styles in Harper's Bazaar, Good Housekeeping, and Hearst's newspapers. A weekly spot on the British newsreel Around the Town between 1919 and 1921 and a fashion advice column called Letters to Dorothy for the London Daily Sketch from 1922 to 1928. She even had the designs included in the special catalogs of Sears. But Lucy also went for the clamor and clits of the American theatre when dressing the Siegfeld Follies revues on Broadway, and eventually the movie scene, adapting her costumes to suit the screen's demands. She worked with celebrities like Irene Castle, Billy Burke and Mary Pickford, Norma and Constance Talmadge, Clara Kimball-Young, Pearl White, Corinne Griffith, Gloria Swanson and Marion Davis. She also clad the first lady of American cinema, Lillian Gish, in her role in Way Down East. Remember, the one from which Gish would have lasting nerve damage to her fingers. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, head over to the episode on Lillian Gish, linked in the show notes. And one anecdote in which Lucius mentioned is from Hedda Hopper. Apparently, when Hopper was starring in Virtuous Wives in 1918, Hopper decided to upstage the better-known headliner Anita Stewart by spending all of her salary of $5,000 on fashions from Lucille's New York branch. Lucy contributed costumes to more than 80 films, causing Motion Picture magazine in 1916 to remark, Nowadays, it is an everyday affair for a prominent actress to blossom forth in a Lucille frock particular to Lucy was that she translated her knowledge of the theater stage to the new medium of movies, designing her dresses and suits in a way that would benefit the narrative of the story and adapt to the technical requirements. So she would, for example, do the same dress in two colors to make sure it would translate well to the screen in different lighting situations. Because remember, this is black and white. In 1918, Lucy designed costumes for The Reason Why, which starred Clara Kimball-Young. This was a film based on a novel written by her sister, Eleanor Glynn. And just as much as Lucy would help to define femininity through a fashion, her sister, as a novelist, writer and producer in Hollywood, would bring to the world the concept of IT, as well as the original IT girl, Clara Bow. In addition, Lucille's New York and London salons provided the setting for several motion pictures in which fashion show scenes were filmed. These included The American Princess, The World of Life, The Spendthrift, The Amateur Wife and Walls of Prejudice. Besides her career as a dressmaker, designer and journalist... Lucy took significant advantage of opportunities for commercial endorsement. She lent her name for the advertising for brass, perfume, shoes and other luxury apparel and beauty items. She even ventured into the automotive industry when she sealed a contract to design interiors for limousines and town cars for the Chalmers Motor Company, later the Chrysler Corporation. So Lucy was almost as well known as her clients as the greatest creator of fashions in the world, who would always have young and handsome assistants in tow. And exactly those boys would be the reason for Lucy and Cosmo to end their personal relationship, but not the professional business one. At this time, Lucy had created an international business with many artists drawing many of her designs for lingerie and dresses. But then, Lucy ran out of luck. During World War I, most of her branches had closed down. Additionally, Sears had ended their deal and she had lost a lawsuit to her former agent. Otis Wood was now allowed to use her name. And the hardships of war now favored a more classic and simple elegance as emerging Coco Chanel was proving capable of. On top of that, a new bevy of dressmakers and costume designers who all started out together with Lucy in the Hollywood scene, like Travis Benton, Gilbert Adrian or Claire West, took over as employees of the big studios, which was more economical for them. During World War I, Lucy staged a fundraiser fashion show for her sister Eleanor to aid French refugees, which was a big success, and Lucy donated the money to the French refugees. But this led to an invitation to dress a 25-week tour through the U.S., Although she had received similar offers before, she now accepted. Because she probably needed it. On top of that, when Lucille Limited was being restructured, it became evident that Lucy hadn't designed the dresses herself for a long time, but others had done so. So all of this coming together, the company went bankrupt shortly after. Lucy then made the move back to Paris and did just what she had done when she started out. She was making clothes for individual clients out of her home. Her life had come full circle. And in 1935, Lucy died four years to the day after her husband Cosmo in a London hospital from breast cancer. To be quite honest, I found Lucy Lady Duff Gordon just as inspiring as her sister Eleanor. They both lived and worked and created during a time that was just Different from anything that had happened before or that would happen after, because it was a time of clamour, it was a time of lavishness and grandeur, it was just mesmerizing, and Lucy just as much contributed to the clamour of old Hollywood as her sister Eleanor had done, so those two will be in my heart forever. And I'm sure I will read up on that even more than I have now. So I hope you enjoyed this episode on Lucy. And if you haven't done so yet, please do catch up on the Eleanor Glenn episode. Because I think this is a treasure that any old Hollywood lover needs to hear. I am really happy that you're listening to this. And I can't wait to talk to you next week. Have a wonderful week. Bye.